Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that today we're gonna learn about a lot about basically going through the full cycle as a founder and then also the um, the, the life purpose of being able to help founders and, and creative and, and innovators, not only from the educational side, but then also from the financing side. So I guess without further ado, Adam Pritzker, welcome to the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. So let me ask you this, Adam, how was uh, life uh, being born and, and raised there in San Francisco? San Francisco is a pretty amazing place to grow up. Uh, to date myself, I was born in 84 and I left in 03 to go to New York for college. So as you can imagine, from 84 to 03, uh, a lot happened in San Francisco. The tech people kind of went from a, a fringe group to the kind of dead center of the culture. Right. Especially because when you came here, probably the um, innovation and the creativity that is happening today, it was almost non-existent. I mean, you had like big companies starting to happen, like DoubleClick and, and things like that, but it was still really premature compared to the Bay Area, no? Absolutely. In terms of the startup community, there was kind of, it seems like a wave or two of founders uh, before me. Uh, General Assembly, the first company I started, uh, with a number of co-founders, really kicked off in 2010. Uh, and, you know, Flatiron at that time had kind of tumbleweeds going through the middle of it. Uh, we leased a 20,000-square-foot space for $30 a foot. I believe it's like $90 a foot now. So a lot has changed since 2010. Got it. And we'll get into General Assembly in just a bit. But I wanted to ask you, kind of like the um, the upbringing and, and growing up in San Francisco and then also coming from a family of, of people that have been very much deep in, in businesses that have also created very successful businesses, like for example, the Hyatt. I guess, what did you learn uh, growing up from the business side? I mean, did you always knew that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I did, yeah. I mean, my aunts and uncles and cousins were all entrepreneurial. It was all around me uh, and at the dinner table. And I uh, so interested in everything, you know, uh, people were building and wanted to build things myself at some point. Uh, I knew I obviously had to learn a lot uh, before I went out on my own, but that was certainly uh, felt like a calling. Mm. So talking about learning, you went to Columbia here in, in New York City. So what was your experience there and why did you pick this school? 
I loved Columbia. I wanted to get out of the, you know, leave the West Coast. Uh, the West Coast can be a little bit of a bubble. And in fact, it's it's such a comfortable and wonderful bubble that I never feared that I was leaving forever. I always knew that I would come back, but wanted a different experience, wanted a different city, wanted a different culture, wanted to really cut my teeth in uh, a place I knew could make a real impact on me and in which I would have a really accelerated learning curve. And New York certainly did that. So, so basically, how was the um, transition from graduating from Columbia to really making the dive into into your first rodeo as a, as a founder and, and also the process of meeting Jake, Matt, and, and Brad? Well, so San Francisco to the Upper West Side was not a huge transition. The Upper West Side to downtown Manhattan was a massive transition. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was exciting, uh, somewhat scary. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I studied anthropology and economics at Columbia. Um, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur eventually, but not really sure how to get there. And I was applying to business school uh, to Stanford, and I was applying to a job at IDEO. And that's kind of where the idea for General Assembly started to come together. Like, what if there was a combination of those two places, the kind of learning by doing of IDEO, uh, the education and community of Stanford B-School? Um, and what if it was, like, a lot easier to get in? What if the cost was a lot lower? What if the people who were in that community were also practitioners? Uh, what if it was in New York and in a central area that everybody could come to? And as I was thinking about this and, you know, bouncing the idea off of people, uh, uh, folks kept saying, you know, you, you should really talk to this guy, Matt Brimer. Um, he's doing the same thing. And so we got together and decided that, you know, instead of, you know, competing in quotes, uh, that we would join forces and build it together. And, and Matt had gone to college with Brad and Jake. Um, and we all joined forces and launched General Assembly, which started as a co-working space, actually. Uh, it did not start as an education company. Uh, it quickly turned into that, frankly, because that's what all of the potential customers were requesting. And so we built our first classroom and, you know, the rest was history. Classes turned into courses, um, courses turned into workshops, and kind of that whole world of education began to emerge. And that's when kind of Fortune 2000 companies began approaching us. Uh, and we started developing that enterprise education product. Got it. And and I guess four co-founders typically is the limit uh, in my perspective. Otherwise, it just gets too crazy managing the egos. So I guess for for the four of you, how did you decide to divide and conquer on in terms of responsibility? I think honestly, we got incredibly lucky in terms of what people's natural skill sets were. Um, we all kind of focused on different things and were good at those things and that kind of emerged naturally. I mean, we had really, I would say we were all entrepreneurial, but none of us really had the systems in place to understand how to build a business. And those kind of came on the fly. I have a very distinct memory of, and I believe it was 2011, maybe 12, a woman who's now extremely well known. I think she was just on the time 100, Aileen Lee, uh, from Kleiner Perkins at the time came and said, have you heard of this idea called objectives and key results? And I said, no, I've never heard of objectives and key results. She said, well, here's an example we use at Kleiner. Uh, and and it, it, the example is how to win the Super Bowl. Uh, and it was actually just in John Doerr's book. And, and it showed basically like, here are the objectives of various team members. Here are the key results, you know, in terms of how you measure yourself on the way to achieving those objectives. 
So all those things we kind of learned as we went. Aileen, of course, went on to start Cowboy Ventures and coined the term unicorn and is now uh, in the time 100. So this was this was long before that. Yeah, no, I remember when when she actually went and and started her own firm. So, so I guess uh, for you, uh, Adam, you you eventually became the um, chief creative officer of of General Assembly. So, so how would you define a chief creative officer? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I feel like my job was really trying to define the brand experience across various touch points and communicate those online and offline. And that really excited me because it was both digital and physical. And I've always been interested in the intersection of the two. And by the way, my job would not have been possible without my colleague, Mimi Chun, who was actually interviewing to hire me at IDEO uh, and who we actually ended up hiring at General Assembly as our first employee. So I really learned so much from Mimi in terms of it's what IDEO typically calls human-centered design in terms of starting with the customer, understanding what the customer wants and working backwards from there. And so that's really what I would say is the kind of, um, you know, gamut of the chief creative officer. But, you know, it is a it is a very broad term and could mean a lot of different things. Of course. So for General Assembly, what ended up being the business model? General Assembly, well, there were a couple different business models. The first was co-working, and that was to essentially break even. Uh, the second was, what if the people in that co-working space started teaching classes and we took a percentage of whatever revenue they generated so that the person teaching could make some money and we could make some money? We then started workshops in which we charged a little bit more and finally ended up in courses, which were essentially these you know, two to three week you know, all the way up to six week boot camps in, uh, you know, web development, immersives, front end development, back end development, user experience design, user interface design. And the idea there was, you know, there has to be an ROI. So, you know, people are going to pay for, for classes and, and there needs to be some kind of outcome, a job, for example. And as we started to do that, uh, that's when Fortune 2000 companies started to approach us and say, hey, can you help us do this with our workforce? Right. Right. And you and actually that ended up really driving um, the outcome for General Assembly. The consumer business was was larger than the enterprise business, but the enterprise business, you know, uh, was growing much faster and obviously traded at a higher multiple because there are longer contracts. Uh, it, it was more of a B2B business. And talking about growth, you were leading the global expansion. So so when we're thinking about growth, um, I think that growth is, is just so critical, especially for a business like this. So what were some of the tactics that you guys were using to really get people in the door that, you know, someone like a tactic that perhaps you can remember that it was like very scrappy and very lean. And yeah, I mean, I really have to give Brad Hargraves and, and Matt Brimer a lot of credit for for the kind of growth aspect of what we were doing. I think the brilliant thing that Brad and Matt realized was twofold. One, if you can engage the community and get the community to promote itself, in this case, come take my class on user experience design, and you could do a lot of those classes, you would have the entire community promoting General Assembly. And then Matt was really just bringing all kinds of people through, doing all kinds of events, happy hours, dinners. And so that really drove the kind of marketing and growth of General Assembly. So as you're thinking about community, uh, Adam, and I guess that this is like more of a, of a question that comes to mind from, from all these different experiences that you have, how do you, how do you define um, 
community? Like, what does a successful community look like to you, in your eyes? A successful community is a group of people who have a relationship to one another, ideally a deep relationship and not just kind of loose ties. We're all interested in a certain subject and empowering one another in it. Uh, that's how I think about it. Because would you say that a community, when we're thinking about retention uh, and, and really being able to keep the, the customers inside the ecosystem, would you say that community Perhaps it was one of the aspects of General Assembly? Absolutely. Yes. Got it. Got it. So then, so then, for example, like as we're thinking about growth and, and then also financing this, how much capital was raised prior to the uh, actual acquisition? Uh, about $100 million in venture capital. And that was a real learning experience for me. The, the venture capital experience. Uh, I mean, I was a customer of venture capital. And, you know, one of the really difficult things about raising venture capital uh, was that General Assembly was a very CapEx intensive business, right? We had to build out a lot of campuses and we were using mostly equity to do that. And that's a really expensive thing to do. And uh, Jake, the CEO, did a phenomenal job managing that and being as capital efficient as possible. Uh, but that's kind of that learning is one of the things that led to how we finance brands at Assembled Brands. I got incredibly interested in capital-intensive businesses that were driven by online marketing and community and trying to understand, you know, what is the best way to finance these kinds of businesses? And it was really at that point that I realized that the future of venture financing was going to be reinvented because, you know, the world of atoms is very different than the world of bits. And the way you finance those things should also be very different. But in the case of kind of growth companies, uh, at that point, and to a certain extent still, there, there wasn't and isn't a difference. And so uh, that's when I started to get really interested in alternative kinds of financing. Really cool. And for General Assembly, I mean, you guys raised from, from unbelievable investors. So obviously the, um, the, the learning that you got was from top-tier folks, and that was... Uh, for example, Bezos Expeditions, uh, GSV, uh, Maveron, DFJ, IBP. So, so really, really great people. So, so I guess, and, and we're going to talk about the, um, you know, the outcome of this in, in just a little bit. But, but you also, at what point, uh, at one point, sorry, you were like, okay, now is my time to build a sample branch, and I'm going to remain as the chairman uh, of uh, General Assembly. So. So how was that transition for you? Because sometimes, you know, it's, it's really tough because a startup is like your baby. So uh, to a certain extent, you know, you may be thinking that you're leaving or, or leaving your baby behind. So how was that for you? Certainly uh, always a difficult experience to go from operating a company to sitting on a company's board for anybody who's done that before. Uh, we were very lucky though. I mean, Jake is such a capable manager and leader. Our board was incredibly strong and diverse, uh, in terms of capabilities. And, uh, it felt like the right time. It felt like general assembly was on a great path and I had other interests, uh, and I had a particular interest in people who were, you know, not just developing digital products, but developing physical products to get back to this idea of bits versus atoms. And I really wanted to understand that world of atoms better and the kind of innovation that was going on in that world. And that's when I decided, you know, 
The way I want to go about this is actually to develop a number of consumer products and brands. And in doing that, I will learn kind of what the value chain looks like, what the supply chain looks like, where the greatest friction is, so that I can build a business on top of that. And that was a real learning from General Assembly was like picks and shovels businesses are great businesses. And my goal was always to start another picks and shovels business, but to do that through uh, the lens of a consumer experience. Because if you can get that consumer sizzle and you can begin to build a brand name, the enterprise part becomes a lot easier. Some people critique this approach a lot, by the way. They call it a bank shot, right? Where it's like you start doing one thing and end up doing another. Uh, I personally feel that starting enterprise businesses through consumer businesses is a really interesting way to build companies. And that's, that's, the, way, that's the way I like to go about it. So diving now uh, into assemble brands, but just before doing that, to close the gap here on or or, or the chapter here of um, General Assembly, General Assembly was actually acquired, and it was reported that it was re- acquired by the Adeco Group for four hundred and thirteen million. So yeah. the question that I have for you here, Adam, is saying um, how big was the business when the acquisition happened? How big was the business in terms of revenue? I mean, that's confidential. In terms of, in terms I, of for I, example, I employees, like how many employees did uh, General Assembly have? I think it was 500 at that point. 500. Really, yeah. Really cool. So let's talk about Assemble Brands. Adam, yeah. so so walk me through the incubation of the idea of Assemble Brands. So obviously you were talking about, uh, you saw how inefficient, you know, the ways companies were financing and you saw like a real future on on what would be next for financing companies. So so what was that transition into, until the day that you actually said, today is the day I'm pulling the trigger? Yeah, you know, in retrospect, uh, I didn't spend years doing research. I felt, let's just get started actually developing a number of brands and the path will make itself a lot clear. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, You know, what I was seeing was that there was going to be social media was driving a proliferation of consumer products because people could more easily discover them. At the same time, consumers wanted to understand kind of the contents of those products, the supply chain of those products, where those products came from. And finally, you know, factories kind of around the world were allowing uh, people developing brands to do smaller runs of goods to micro-target people, essentially using social media. And then finally, you know, local brands could now be global because of e-commerce. And so I felt kind of like there would be this proliferation of digital applications. There'd be a proliferation of consumer brands and that every product in every category would be reinvented. And I really wanted to be a part of that. I didn't know exactly how, but I did know that the enterprise infrastructure layer would have to undergo a massive transformation from the kind of incumbent infrastructure in order to power all of these new brands. And those were the kinds of businesses that I wanted to develop. And that's how we really arrived at this financing business. Because we had a number of brands, one in particular was growing incredibly fast, needed financing, venture funding was not the right source of funding for it, the brand's not going to be the next Uber, and banks were just very difficult to get funding from and uh there were a lot of covenants and it was very slow and it was very inflexible and that's when we said you know 
hey, you know, to, to the creative director of this brand who owns, you know, a significant piece of the equity, no, we'll finance it. We'll give you a loan. Uh, and you won't have to dilute. We can continue on this growth trajectory. And that's what we did. And it turned out to be an expanding pie. Uh, she was incredibly happy. We were incredibly happy. And it was at that point that we realized, hey, maybe there are a lot of other brands out there that are looking for this kind of financing. And, and that's really how the business took off. Got it. So I guess the, um, so in a way, kind of like to provide the 30,000 foot view of, of the idea, or perhaps the elevator pitch of, of uh, assemble brands so that people understand the people that are listening, how would you, how would you really describe it? Well, I would say that, you know, uh, assembled brands is a new way to finance companies and it's a new approach to build brands. And that's really what we're trying to do. And I think that's threefold, right? The first is financing in the form of credit, right? Because that's a far better way to fund Adams uh, than just equity. Now you need some equity, obviously, but if you use all equity, you're probably going to get diluted out. Two, a lot of these kinds of businesses use the same technologies and the same metrics, QuickBooks and Shopify, for example. And the types of metrics they're looking at are, you know, they're doing cohort analysis to try to understand their, you know, repeat customers. They're trying to understand the lifetime value of that customer. They're trying to understand the cost to acquire that customer. They're trying to build the most capital efficient business possible. And you can take all of that data and you can benchmark it against all the other brands in a category or in consumer goods generally. And you can provide business insights on one hand to the brands themselves, as well as use that data to actually more effectively underwrite credit to those brands. And then finally, you can use those insights for specific brands to say, hey, these are the areas you can really improve. Here's a network of vendors and growth marketing and manufacturing um, et cetera, who can really help you improve those metrics. And, and we think that's really the flywheel. So then, so then for example, like the, um, the businesses that you guys get involved with, because I find that one of the things that I really miss in the, for example, in the venture space is that many of the investors that are investing in those hyper growth companies, they have the wall street mentality and background, and they don't bring the operational expertise to really help in, in building the brand on the, on, on, on the long term. Because unfortunately, many of these investors say, yes, we add value, but it's just a very per small percentage of them that actually do. So when you're thinking about getting involved with these companies, like what is, what, what does how do you define value? What does that value that you guys bring look like? Well, one, I think the value is in the kind of financing that we're offering and that kind of financing is not widely available. So I think that's a really valuable thing, right? To help founders preserve the equity in their company and provide financing in a relatively flexible way. So I'd say that's number one. Number two, because we've looked at 3,500 brands over the last 18 months, we've got a lot of data on what a great brand looks like and what, what metrics and eligibility criteria define a really great brand, both from an operational perspective and an investment perspective. And then finally, because we've developed our own brands, we have a pretty vast network of vendors uh, who can serve brands in growing their companies. 
And when you combine those three things, we think that's a really powerful combination. Well, I think there's something really interesting that, that you point to there, Adam, and, in, and it's the, um, the fact that you have analyzed 3,500 businesses. And, and the data from that, I mean, I'm sure that you were able to really get some good pattern recognition as to how certain things work, how certain things don't work, you know, or businesses, you know, like have more potential than others. So what does, according to those patterns that you've seen, a really good investment opportunity, what patterns does the opportunity have or traits or ingredients? Well, it's probably relatively obvious and, you know, I don't want to give away all of our secret sauce, but I would say at at a very high level, right, um, loyalty is incredibly important and loyalty can be measured by a customer buying your product over and over and over again. And if they're doing that, your business actually looks somewhat like a subscription business, right? And if you've launched that subscription-looking business in a capital-efficient way, that's a very powerful combination for value creation. And, you know, that's really what we see as um, the core of a fantastic business. You know, it's one that's been extremely capital-efficient, that has a loyal customer base. And if you have those two things, you're going to grow organically and you're not going to spend that much money on customer acquisition. Um, relative to the return on that ad spend. And I guess, I guess on your end as well as, um, as an entrepreneur, uh, Adam, what kind of, um, what kind of difference or, or I say how different has been your experience from, let's say being the operator of, um, of a company like general assembly where you're raising money from, from let's say VCs, then for example, the experience from running assemble brands where you have to raise money also, let's say from LPs or from whoever that is to invest in those different brands. How, how is it different from one another? Yeah. So we don't have LPs. Um, we have investors. Um, our largest investor who wrote us a hundred million dollar check is called Oak tree capital management. Uh, it was founded by, uh, really well-known investor, at least in the finance world, named Howard Marks and his partner, Bruce Karsh. And it's been an amazing experience learning from the team and the culture at Oak Tree. Uh, They're very different than venture capitalists. They are a large global private credit uh, company uh, with a family of funds uh, that together uh, are about $100 billion in capital under management. And what we really wanted... uh, at Assembled Brands was a partner who deeply understood credit uh, and how to build a company uh, with a credit-oriented culture. And that's very, very different than a venture-oriented culture. Uh, and we think that Assembled Brands is kind of a combination of the two. And it's been it's been fascinating to watch. Um, one example, you know, I always give is, is, is venture, find, you know, people who are doing venture capital are always asking, you know, what could go right? to make this idea huge. And credit investors are always asking, well, what could go wrong to make this thing wipe out? And so that, that debate is always a really fascinating one in terms of how people look at risk. So Oak Tree would define risk as, or Oak Tree would define a good investment as, you've got upside and limited downside. And I think that that latter, thinking about kind of a limited downside uh, is often probably not thought about by venture capitalists. So then, so then, for example, in terms of structure, you said we have investors, we don't have LPs. And for yes. the people that are listening, the 
LPs are the limited partners that invest in a fund, and then the venture firm, you know, basically allocates the capital from that fund. So, so in this case, you have investors. So why did you choose this structure versus the other one? Well, you know, I think initially we really wanted to be a company, not a fund, if that makes sense. And there's certainly value to, to, to both of those kinds of vehicles to finance things. Uh, we really wanted to be a company. And we thought that would give us a longer time horizon, uh, potentially a lower cost of capital, and that those two, uh, you know, a longer time horizon, lower cost of capital could give us a long-term competitive advantage. And so that, that's why we chose to start as a company. Got it. And I've seen as well, I've read that there is a bunch of people, and I don't think that this is um, an accurate comparison, but, but perhaps you can tell us why. I've heard people that are comparing Assemble Brands uh, kind of like being the uh, U.S. equivalent to LVMH, which is this group in, huh. in France and Europe that have been very successful there. So what is the main difference here? Yeah. Uh, well, the main difference, I would say, is size. LVMH is absolutely massive. I believe its market cap is uh, $100 plus billion. So I would say that's a, a big difference. You know, we're just getting started. And I would say LVMH is a pretty mature company. But right. Secondly, what I would say is, you know, the the LVMHs or conglomerates kind of of the future are not going to look like the conglomerates of the past, just like the technology companies of the future don't look like the technology companies of the past. Right. So the next Microsoft didn't look like Microsoft. It looked like Google. And the next Google didn't look like Google. It looked like Facebook. And I think that's true in almost any industry, including ours. So while I obviously am extremely flattered um, by the comparison, uh, I think we're, we're quite different, um, obviously, first in both in terms of size, but also in terms of approach. I mean, we're not a private equity firm taking control positions in brands and companies. We're trying to provide the infrastructure and the financing to a very long tail of entrepreneurs looking to build businesses and help them create a community uh, to succeed. And so, I, you know, I, I think those are pretty different approaches. Yeah, yeah, no, makes total sense. So I guess the, um, for example, consumer brands and, and based on, on all this data and, and, and these different companies that you've seen, what are typically the, let's say, the three biggest challenges that, that, these, uh, that these companies have to deal with? Well, I would say the biggest is managing cash flow uh, because it's really difficult to create product and inventory and sell that product and inventory directly to consumers because, it, you know, you're not getting very many purchase orders necessarily from stores. So historically, the way that you could build a brand was essentially from credit extended by stores. Right. So stores would say, Alejandro, I want to buy one hundred thousand dollars worth of your goods. And you could take that purchase order, that promise to pay you one hundred thousand dollars to a bank uh, or, or a factor. They're called you know, factoring companies. And the factor would say, great, I'll give you eighty thousand dollars right now to go produce your goods. You go produce your goods. You put them in the store. And then when the store finally pays you that hundred thousand dollars, that goes straight to the bank or the factor. They make a twenty thousand dollar spread you got your cash up front to make your goods. And, you know, it's a virtuous cycle. That cycle was broken uh, by the destruction of 
retail stores and the emergence of direct-to-consumer marketing and distribution. And so that, that's really how our opportunity emerged. And what we believe is the greatest friction point for small brands. It's, it's not you know, um, buying servers or building technology to sell your goods online. You know, all of that stuff is pretty commoditized now and easy to access. The most difficult part now is figuring out how to finance and grow your brand. So then how do you, how do you see online versus offline for, for this type of uh, businesses? Well, I, I think that, you know, brands should strive to be omnichannel. I think that offline does a number of things. I think it's a way people can discover your brand. Um, I think you still can get some of those purchase orders. Uh, and that in combination is a great thing, right? Um, because uh, you're essentially having uh, uh, somebody provide credit to you in the form of a store so that you can go get these, you know, um, uh, purchase order financings like I described, and people can also discover your goods offline. And if those goods are really good, they're going to want to buy them again online. And so if you can get that offline to online conversion to happen and then repeat purchases online, that offline strategy um, is, is, uh, is, is a smart one to pursue. A lot of people don't do that when you look at the metrics and they love the idea of building a physical environment, uh, but people don't end up buying again. And if that's not happening, you're actually burning a lot of money on pop-ups. So, you know, that's something we see often is when uh, people are burning a lot more money than they're making and may not even realize it. Well, one thing that I've heard uh, over and over again, and, and you tell me if you agree or disagree, is that having a physical um, store really increases the loyalty of, of customers. You what know, do you I, I don't agree. I think that that uh, that a a product that people really love that achieves market adoption is the thing that creates loyalty and the distribution channels are the distribution channels and certainly you know um you need a consistent brand messaging um and a consistent kind of brand style guide if you will so that the message um you know, isn't disjointed across various types of touch points. But at the end of the day, it's the product that has to be really, really good and people have to love. And then your, you know, then your distribution should be every possible touch point. I love it. I mean, that's a good, good, different uh, opinion here. So, so then talking about distribution, especially for the folks that are listening, what kind of pointers would you give them in terms of like how to build their distribution channels? You know, I think that the thing that wholesale is actually great for is to get feedback from buyers, and number one. And number two, I think it's really helpful in pricing your product. Because one of the mistakes we see a lot is that people price their product to distribute direct to consumers online, and the margin is obviously a lot higher doing that. But if you try to go from that to offline wholesale, your margin can get crushed. So if you start with wholesale pricing in mind, then when you build direct, your margin will have a lot of cushion and be, you know, much better. And so, that, you know, that's just like one example of how doing offline and online can both be really helpful in terms of feedback and in terms of pricing. And of course, in terms of marketing and discovery, right? Got it. So I guess from, from a trends perspective, where do you see the world of consumer brands hitting? I see the world in which every product in every category is reinvented. 
And I don't think that our children are going to be eating Smucker's jelly. I think people care about what's going, what's inside of whatever they're consuming, right? What the contents are, where that good comes from. Um, I think they care about the community around that product and the kind of tribe of people, not unlike indie music or indie bands. And I think that people are interested in consuming local brands from, you know, all over the world that are best in breed for whatever it is being sold. Uh, so, you know, I think these big incumbent actually conglomerates of uh, food brands or fashion and apparel brands or kind of you name it uh, are, are in a lot of trouble. And, and why are they in a lot of trouble? Because, because people want um, a sense of community. Um, and, and I'm not as much talking about the heritage brands in Europe. I think that's a slightly different thing. Uh, uh, I think they're in trouble for all the reasons that I mentioned, right? Which is uh, people care about what's inside of what they're consuming, where that comes from, who is making it, what those people stand for. Uh, they want more unique goods that may help, you know, Uh, self-identify them with a community of people who they feel aligned with in terms of values. Uh, and they can now buy things uh, from all over the world, you know, whether it's in Sweden um, or Japan. So I guess that's, that's really consciousness. So why all of a sudden do you think that this level of consciousness from the people that are buying, wh where is this coming from? Wow. That is really well said and something we talk about. Um, quite a bit here on, uh, I would say, nights and weekends, is that there is definitely a global consciousness that is emerging among a younger generation. And frankly, I think that's probably powered by the transparency provided by the internet. Um, I think this kind of era of uh, giant runs of manufactured goods where people have no idea where they come from and they have no idea who's making them and they show up in these stores as these kind of gleaming objects totally disconnected uh, from their production. I think that era is over. I think people, you know, want to know who is making whatever they're consuming. You know, I keep repeating this, but they want to know what's in it. They want to have a connection with the people making it and a connection with each other. And that's really, that really is an expansion of consciousness. It, in a way, it's kind of funny because, you know, having studied anthropology, it's a return to uh, a pretty ancient system um, of exchange and of gifting and of, and of use value, you know, where people used to make things and exchange them with each other. So they had more meaning uh, kind of uh, versus this big kind of factory Uh, set up as I as I described it before, uh, and that is absolutely an, an evolution of consciousness, and it's it's fascinating, uh, and it shows up in the data as well. I mean, if, you know, if you look at what millennials really want to do uh, with their careers, uh, they want to be entrepreneurs. They want to make things. Uh, they want to be connected uh, to to their work and to the people who are consuming their work. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I guess same. We were talking about the future and, you know, I think that the listeners are also starting to, to see what, what that canvas perhaps looks like, you know, either with some of the pointers that they've been getting from, from listening to this conversation or from whatever thoughts that they have. But I guess in a world 
where, let's say, you know, as we're talking about the future, in a world where the vision of a sample brand has been fully realized, what does that world look like? It looks like a world in which venture finance will have been completely reinvented uh, to serve not only digital companies, but companies developing physical products uh, in the physical world. So, so I guess uh, as we're thinking about immediate steps, right, in, 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 on your end to, to get there, to really realize that vision, where are you guys uh, today? Like how, how, what does the operation look like so that the listeners get a better understanding of, of what does Assemble Brands look like today? So, you know, as I said before, we've looked at 3,500 consumer brands. Um, you know, we're really studying those brands closely. We're financing a number of those brands. Uh, we're providing those brands business insights to improve their businesses and connecting them to a network of vendors. And, you know, again, we think that's that's a real flywheel. And so that's, you know, what we think of the thin edge of the wedge, if you will, into kind of this vast world of financing, uh, you know, uh, CapEx intensive businesses and, you know, uh, businesses that are making uh, stuff, if you will. Got it. So I guess, uh, you know, you, you've been through through quite a bit, uh, Adam. Um, obviously, this is your your second meaningful rodeo. So so I, I always ask the guests that, that come on the show the same question, and I want to ask you this question too. So uh, basically is, knowing what you know now, uh, Adam, uh, if you had the opportunity to speak to your younger self and you had the chance to give yourself, that younger self, one piece of business advice, what would that be and why? It would be to focus less on the outcome and focus more on the process and on the relationships. And I think that's, that's a big mistake I've made in the past when I was younger. Still am young, but you know, I started as an entrepreneur at, at 25 and I'm turning 35. Um, and, and, to really, and to really enjoy the process and to build deep and meaningful relationships and be a little less focused on whatever the ultimate outcome is. Really cool. Really cool. So what is the, um, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Through our website, hello at assemblebrands.com. Amazing. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.